Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Lauren Greif. Lauren is president of Portfolio Rocket and host of the podcast, A Career Blast and a Half. She has dedicated herself to ending career victimization one executive at a time. She supports executives in their career search, whether it is transition or looking to take the next step, whatever it might be. She does a great job working with them, helping them develop strategies, techniques, and approaches to land their career job, and in some cases, position themselves for jobs that they didn't know they were available for or otherwise wouldn't have been considered. And today, I'm really excited to talk about a wide range of topics with her, including how to be a great interviewee how to keep your interviewer from zoning out on you in the middle of the conversation, which is the time they most likely are, and how to develop it, how to develop, excuse me, communication agility, among a lot of other topics that I'm really excited to get to. But before we do, I want to make sure, as always, we thank our sponsors. First, we thank Humantel. Please, if you are interested in learning how to accurately evaluate how somebody's emotions are changing based on their shifting facial expressions, head over to Humantel.com and enter the code INCOISIVE25 for 25% off all of their best-in-class online training programs. I recommend it. I've done it myself. That's Humantel.com, INCOISIVE25 for 25% off all of their online training for accurately reading, changing behavior through body language and facial expressions within the context of the situation. If you're looking to learn more about emotional intelligence, please head over to ei-magazine.com and look at the growing catalog Emotional Intelligence Magazine has of resources, including podcasts, books, interviews, articles, online, cohort, in-person training, so many things that have going on there at ei-magazine.com. And of course, for the professional interviewers, please head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for all things related to the International Association of Interviewers. Explore their content, explore their training programs, explore their networking opportunities, legal updates and resources, current events that they have coming up. And if it's right for you and your team, check out the certified forensic interviewer designation to see if that level of expertise is with the next level for you or your team to level yourself up to. Once again, thank you all so much for taking the time to be here and listen to this conversation today. I truly appreciate it. So without further ado, I introduce to you Lauren Greif. Good morning, Lauren. It is so great to see you. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. How are you? Never better. Never better. Happy Friday. Hello, listeners. And an honor to be here, Michael. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And for me, this is one of those where I get to flip the script because you have got to interview me a few times, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. And you're very, very gracious with allowing me to to flip it a little bit and pick your brain here, which I'm really excited to do. So let's give people a little bit of an idea of why I'm so excited to do that. To the degree that you wish, if you could do me a favor for those who might not be aware of who you are and the great work that you do, if you could walk us a little through your journey of how you got here and what you're doing currently. Absolutely. So first of all, my name is Lauren Greif. I say that not only so you know me, but because I have a funny spelling to my last name. So please don't say grief. And I am today the founder of Portfolio Rocket. And I am on a mission to end career victimization one executive at a time. So I'm going to rewind just a little bit to bring you to how I got to where I am now. And the long story short is that I've been in the career space for close to 30 years. I have always, always, always been fascinated with what lights people up, how they are able to navigate through challenging market conditions. I've hired people through recessions and pandemics and all of this stuff. And what is it that separates some candidates from being a hot commodity and others that are stuck. So we see this all the time. And back in 2019, I was working for the big guys, you know, one of those big fancy schmancy uh, executive recruiting firms. And I ended up sending an email to a, a, a client 
who, by the way, <clears throat> was also the founder of a pornography site. And in the email, I signed it off and said, yippee, because I was so excited. He was down to two candidates to make us a chief marketing officer decision. And at that point, I got a hard knock on my door and it was my boss. And she said, well, we need to talk about your email. And I misinterpreted that and thought she was so excited because we were about to make close a huge deal. And she said, we're going to put you on a performance plan. And I said, well, what for? And she said, well, that language is unprofessional. And I realized, you know what? I don't belong here. And I don't even think I want to belong here. I don't know where I belong. And that immediate confusion, anger became my catalyst. And I say that in a very in, you know, empathic way, because we all have felt like, God, it didn't work out the way I, the way I wanted it to. And after all that anger had subsided, I realized that the mission and what I was really here to do was to aggregate a lot of the BS that was happening in the hiring market and to help candidates to be seen as not only stronger candidates and create that competitive wedge, but mostly to help them to learn something so that they don't repeat the cycle of going back and being victimized all over again. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, that's actually a story that I hadn't heard before in all of our conversations. And I've got to say, of all the words I've dreaded accidentally saying that could get me immediately fired, Yippie has never made the list. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. So you never, you never know. Of course, today I'm going yippee, like in the real way. <laughs> yes, yes, because it was a, certainly a win for you and so many of the people that you've helped along the way. And yeah, if we're going to be that rigid about how we talk to people and limiting our excitement, that's an, a conversation for another day. Um, I do think that is a, a reasonable segue to one of the things that I really was interested in talking to you about. And I know you help candidates a lot, and I want to spend a lot of this time really focusing on things that we can do to help candidates become stronger communicators and more confident and better observers throughout the interview process. But before we get into that, I would like to touch on the interview piece for a second as well, because many of the executives who might be listening to this conversation may have been or could be candidates. But they also could be interviewers as well. So they're experiencing it from both sides. My personal belief, and I'm certainly interested to hear your opinion on this, is that there are a series of bad habits, false assumptions, ineffective techniques that interviewers use to reinforce some of these limitations that are often put on great candidates. So if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to start here. From your perspective, what are some of the likely unintentional obstacles or limitations successful executives create for themselves during the interview process when they're looking to hire candidates? So from the hiring manager's perspective, what, again, not all hiring managers are great interviewers, which is the, the question behind the question, right? Like, what do you do when you have a hiring manager and they're a horrible interviewer? So there's good news and bad news to this. Regardless of whatever kind of interviewer that they are, you need to be a good interviewee. So you cannot let that person override the reason why you're there. Because otherwise, again, you'll go back to saying, well, they were just a crappy interviewer and that won't move your needle in terms of where you need to go. For those who are on the interviewer side, you hiring manager out there, my goodness, you are going to not just screw yourself over if you are not prepared. And when I say that, please, please, before you get into that conversation, remember that the experience that is happening for the candidate is a reflection of both you and the company that you represent. 
meaning that once they have a bad candidate experience, it's bigger than just that interview per se. Who knows? They may go to Glassdoor. They may, you know, talk about it on LinkedIn. But at the end of the day, that's a responsibility that you have because your job as the hiring manager is to find the best candidate in the shortest amount of time. And if you're not treating that as, as a serious piece of your business, you cannot expect anybody to have respect for the role and or the organization that you are representing. So very important that it's bigger than just, hey, we're going to wing it. Because that that's that's just plain old disrespectful. The second thing is, I would really encourage any hiring manager to be very clear, not on what is listed on the job description, a bunch of skills and qualifications, but to really communicate what the real problem is. Why is this job open? Why will hiring this person change revenue? Why will it change a level of efficiency? What will it mean a year from now when everyone's celebrating a big win? So you need to help this candidate understand, yes, of course, they're responsible for asking questions, but give them a bigger bite over what their impact is going to mean to them. Because if you just lean into that job description, you are promoting more average. Because everybody who is in that queue, in theory, has those skills and qualifications. So help them understand what their impact is going to drive and where their role is going to be so instrumental today, maybe three years from now, who knows? But we know that that interview process is just the tipping point of what's happening to come. That's a great point. And within those job descriptions themselves, which is probably a whole nother conversation, make sure the job descriptions are actually descriptive of what we're looking to find and why. Not only do we fall prey to them in the interview process, but am I really looking for someone with 10 years experience or am I looking for someone with the skills and attributes? I believe it might take 10 years of experience to develop. Those are two entirely different things. And all too often that interview process ends up being more exclusive. How do I get people out of the way as opposed to more inclusive? How do I truly identify the people who have the skills and attributes necessary to achieve the outcomes that I require? Which I just want to chime in here and say, uh, I despise job descriptions. Let me be really clear about that in terms of communication. And the reason for that is because I've seen too much and I can't unsee what I've seen, which is job descriptions are oftentimes placeholders for a much, much bigger and more important agenda. The other piece is that we have no idea how old and how many times that job description has been recycled. So yes. Thirdly, as you pointed out, these job descriptions are literally a, a, a moving target. It, 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 it was this and now it's this, but there's always, and I'm going to really dig my feet in here, there's always more to it. Because if your job description a year from now was what it was when you started, that would be, that would be less than, less than 1%. There's job creep. There's things that happen. You as the candidate are responsible for understanding what's around the corner and down the block, but also from a hiring perspective, you want to make sure that the game of telephone between the person that wrote the job description and the person that's hiring for the description are are, if they are not clear on the job description, then fill in the blanks, fill in the blanks. Which is a great setup for something you said earlier that I'd love to get back to, which is the concept of being a good interviewee. So, mm. because there is a responsibility and something that you mentioned is earlier as well. It's too easy for any candidate to walk away or really anybody that's participated in any conversation and feel like, well, I didn't get the outcome I wanted, but it's not my fault. The other person wasn't prepared. The other person didn't see. The other person didn't understand. They didn't ask the right questions to get my skills and expertise out. 
while all of those things might be true, it is our responsibility to get those skills, expertise, attributes out and tie them into what the interviewer or the organization is trying to achieve, solve the riddle for them. So how do people, especially executives, work at becoming a great interviewee? Okay. So I'm going to back up on two quick things because I think that they're important contextually. First of all, I'm going to bring in science. I know you're a little bit of a science geek and so am I. So our brain works in a very specific manner and it's not you as an interviewer. I'm talking about all humans. We remember, this is the sequencing effect. We remember the beginning and the end of any sequence, book, movie, song, this, that. When you are in an interview, typically it has a very consistent framework. In the beginning, we have rapport building. In the end, you have the Q&A. In the middle, when you are essentially telling your stories, that's when people are checking out. So if you want to remember the sequencing effect, I'm going to draw, and you can too, listener, a you. So think of it as a smile. So that dip down at the bottom, when you're telling all the juicy pieces of information that they need to know in order to move you to the next level is also when that interviewer is typically tuning out. And they start thinking, who's going to walk the dog tonight? Am I going to get a workout in? And for anybody who has been on the hiring manager side, you know, it's like what it was like in, in you know, Charlie Brown. And we've heard these things before. I am a proven leader. I am a this. I am a that. You will put them to sleep. So to maintain their engagement, their interest, and their ability to understand why you are there and going to add value to their organization, you must create a level of stickiness. We call those stories. In our case, we call them, we use a framework called the PAR, which is problem, action, result. But either way, you must know, this is really important, I'm talking about impact. How do you want to impact them? How do you want them to see you? How do you want them to feel? And how do you want them to believe that you are not a candidate, the candidate? So metrics, an easy way to start creating stickiness. A shift in vocal tonalities. If you are talking like this and you are monotoned and have no energy, what it will say to them is you are phoning it in. And this kind of intangible piece that comes from understanding why are you doing this in the first place? So part of what is happening behind the scenes, especially at the executive level, is that they are hiring for a lot of those, I hate this term, but I'll use it with my air quotes, those soft skills. Is this person going to be more or less in the words of Seth Godin, a linchpin. Is this person going to be able to determine, you know, where their value is outside of the hours of the job description or outside of what it looks like to just check the box and do the job? Is this a linchpin that our business would go down the tubes if this person left? If they do leave, are they going to be somebody that we all remember because of their impact? So it's a lot more nuanced and I would say elevated in terms of you being there. And they need to experience that because here's the other point that I want to make. As you become more senior in an organization, you must learn how to influence more people in the shortest amount of time with fewer, more common words. So that sounds very easy, and it is not. 
You want to remove those filler words, ums, or, uh, you know, you know, uh-huh, kind of like, bye-bye. They need to go away because they start eroding your credibility and they derail the topic and the points that you're trying to make. The other piece that's critical is you need to think, hmm, if this person put me in front of a board or was the face of a company for some other public-facing reason, am I going to be able to deliver a succinct message that's going to mobilize a larger body of people? So think bigger, but also keep it clean and concise. So these two things sounds like they're contradictory. It's one of the things that we do all the time with a lot of our clients. And if you really want to test yourself and do this at home, record yourself, record yourself, do a recording on your phone. Nobody will see it. You can revise from there. You can send it to a friend and ask them, especially somebody who doesn't know what you do. Ask them, what did you hear? What was exciting about this? What did it say to you? Because you and I both know just because you say it doesn't mean that people are interpreting it the way that you deliver it. That is a, all of that was valuable. That last idea about recording it and especially sending it to other people that might not know is a fantastic idea. Selfishly to me, when I look back at my career at interview and interrogation, I can pinpoint where my progression curve accelerated when I was forced to record my interrogations and go back and watch them. And then when I joined WZ, and not only were we still recording them, but occasionally the founders of the company would walk upstairs and tell us to go interrogate a video camera, which sounds silly because that there's no interaction there, but you go through it and then they sit down and they pick it apart and just... Not only does it create the muscle memory by talking through it and going through it, but being able to see ourselves and hear ourselves. Nobody likes the sound of your own voice. Get over it. We had to. So get past the sound of your own voice and down to the quality of the message, to your point, how clear, how succinct, how value-driven, how on point, how is it going to resonate with this person, the speed, the tone, all of those things. I feel like, and I'd love your thoughts on this. Often when we think about either differentiating or substantiating ourselves as candidates, we really focus on doing that with our experience, what we've done, which we have to, to some degree, but so doesn't every single other candidate. No candidate has ever sat down for a job interview at the executive level and said, you know what? I'm honestly not sure I'm the man or woman for this job based on what I've kind of done in the past. But if you're willing to give me a shot, I'll try my hardest. Nobody says that. They all brag about why they're ready. So differentiate yourself. I think what you're saying is through the experience. How do you show up? How do you conduct yourself? How are you giving them a different experience during the conversation to shake them out of that mid-interview dip and have them say, wait a minute, this one feels different because to your point, everybody is essentially kind of equal or they wouldn't have gotten through the door. So a friend of mine always says, leave average behind. And what I'm suggesting is, please, I, this sounds so simple and I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I'm going to anyway. People hire people. They don't hire resumes. They don't hire LinkedIn profiles. They don't hire anything that we over-index our time preparing for. And what I mean by that is your resume, the maximum amount of time anyone will look at it, six seconds. Your LinkedIn profile, oh, you can calculate another six seconds. Now, that does not mean it shouldn't be great but it should stop a scroll or force people to say to themselves, hmm, this is somebody that is going to move my business forward. So when I'm speaking about those, that's not going to be the permission for them to compensate you 200, 400, $700,000. They are not, that is not the reason why. They're going to hire you and you 
come with all these other pieces, your communication skills, how you are able to hear and listen, digest, think quickly on your feet. Your communication agility is one one way of being able to describe that. How fast are you at being able to move that conversation to some of the earlier points? They're a lousy interviewer. How agile are you in being able to turn that around so that your points get made? And then lastly, how are you leading by virtue of your communication insofar as people are inspired and excited about what it is that you are are standing for, right? And that, in some respects, spills over to thought leadership, right? What points of view are you just adamant in a good way? I don't mean aggressively (laughs) adamant. I mean, are you committed to that are going to be purposeful and meaningful to those that you are going to be leading? Agreed. And to your point about the resume and the LinkedIn profile, I was previously taught to think this way, and I would love your your updated thoughts on this, that yes, those should be completed in a way that demonstrates a level of expertise and professionalism and capability and so on and so forth. But they should also be presented in a way, I love what you said, to stop the scroll, but to generate questions. Like, I want to know more. I want to see how did that happen? Why did that happen? How did you do that? Where did that idea come from? And I would, I've also was taught that in the interview, I want to do the same thing. If I've got a bad interviewer in front of me, which in all honesty, and I will apologize upfront to everybody who interviews for a living. If I'm being interviewed, I want to just assume upfront that the person who is interviewing me probably doesn't understand the message I'm trying to get out and doesn't clearly understand how to get it from me, which they shouldn't. They're not in my brain. So I want to set them up. I want to give them answers where the next question is obvious. I want to give them the opportunity to feel like the hero of the conversation because I'm stopping a little bit short or I'm I'm feeding something in that I want to get to. So I'm curious if I'm in line with that one and two, what are some of the techniques you work with your clients to set them up either in the documentation or in the interview to be successful with those techniques? So I'm going to share a technique that we use and it is bulletproof. We call it show me, you know me. Show me, you know me is a easy way to remember that when you are invested, interested in that person, for example, one of the first things that I asked you on this call today was about how your son is. And we've talked about your son a number of times. I admittedly forgot his first name, but what I did know is that you're a proud dad. Now, lots of people have kids, right? It's an easy win. But I did not, and this wasn't like a form of manipulation or anything. I, I would do this no matter what, no matter when, because taking an interest in that other person and doing some show me, you know me ahead of time, and I'm going to give you some specific examples in a minute, can set the tone of that interview in a completely different and way more meaningful direction. So Show Me You Know Me works really well when you have listened to a podcast from somebody who has spoken out. And it doesn't have to be the the person who you're interviewing with. It could be the CEO of that company. It could be a company or it could be an industry podcast. It could be some trailer, some clue place where you are going to extract something that is important to the role and important to a mission of a company. So I couldn't help but notice, you know, I saw you guys were, were just uh, listed as, you know, four, you know, Forbes top companies to work for and for women leadership. How has that been so important as you, woman interviewer, have been at this organization, especially since you've been here for seven years? 
So none of these things are rote. I did my research. I understood that she felt included. And what is happening from her from her end, right, is the dopamine is, is kicking off, right? She's like, oh my goodness, I feel great. This person has really like made me feel welcome and, and acknowledged. And so that's such an easy way. And by the way, this is a wonderful application in networking. We use this all the time. And it should never be in the spirit of how can I get something? Of course not. This is when you are really clear and have a genuine interest in building a relationship with whoever that person is. And that would apply to interviews too, because oftentimes you may not get that role, but you can build the relationship and you would be shocked and surprised at how fruitful that can be going forward. Oh, for sure. Recruiters know each other. Other positions become available. The recruiter leave or hiring manager leaves that company and goes somewhere else. Okay. The candidate they hire turns out to be a fraud or their husband or wife gets a job and they have to move. Like, I'm not saying we always want to be plan B, but there's lots of other potential opportunities for this to work out. And by the way, I didn't in any way, shape or form take you using the technique in a negative way. Please don't apologize. They are very real techniques that serve positive means when they're used authentically in real relationships. There's nothing manipulative or negative about that at all. Excuse me. And I forget names all the time. I'm scared to death of having to remember names. It's like my biggest thing. Um, But your point about show me, you know me and demonstrating it often a little bit subtly that I've done my research, that there is a connection here, not just being, so I spent last night three and a half hours on your website and I read all these articles and here's yeah. what I found. Like, we're not talking about stuff. being a stalker, right? You don't yes. want to, that's not where we're going. We're going with the true and, and meaningful reason for why you're there. Because if you are looking for a job, and I, I, I'm going to say this from, from our point of view for our clients, our clients are not looking for JOBs. I have taken JOBs. I've done all the things. I've you know been a waitress. I've worked it. You know, and there were times in my life where that was the right thing to do. If you are at a senior level and you are deliberate about what your next career ideas are and you are looking for some kind of move or some kind of big swing to this part of your life called a career where you're looking for impact, yeah, you want to demonstrate that it is more than just a transaction. Certainly. And to that point, like the example I was going to give, I was at a networking event this late summer, so not that long ago. And if people aren't watching this or have never seen a picture of me, I've ba- I'm bald, like all the way bald, have been for a long time. And when I walked into that meeting, I was speaking at it. So I was there early to set up. One of the people involved like marches up to me with a big smile on his face. He's also bald. And with this giant smile says, hey, I see we go to the same barber. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I don't see you in my bathroom every morning, dude. Like... Uh, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you, man. And I just sidestep them and keep on walking, which could be a personality flaw on my part. That's a conversation for another day. But those like terribly obvious, superficial attempts to act like you know somebody do way more damage than they actually provide help. I was living and working in around New York City, not in, I was in Jersey, but around New York City. And I was visiting one location, speaking with the executive in charge, and he had a diecast model of a 67 Corvette behind him on the shelf. And I knew him. like So I wasn't interviewing for the job or anything like that. We were just talking. And I just happened to say to him, I can't imagine there's too many places to park a 67 Corvette in New York City. He looks at me and laughs and said, you know why I've got that up there? It's like, why? He's like, I don't know anything about Corvettes, but that's how I get people out of my office. Because if they sit, sit, come in, sit down, and the first thing they start doing is trying to chat me up about that Corvette, I know they're trying to manipulate me. Mm-hmm. And I've never forgotten that. And I don't know how many executives would do that, 
but that's a, in my opinion, that's a good technique for cutting through the superficial. I didn't do my research. I'm not trying to create an authentic relationship. I'm trying to manufacture rapport that doesn't currently exist to take advantage mm. of the situation. So considering so that's many. Great. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've never forgot that. And when I work with sales teams all the time, I'm like, slow down. Cause I know at least one dude that's out there doing that. So let's, let's be more prepared and be careful. Um, but when we think about executives looking for positions, some are introverted, some are extroverted, some are analytical, some are innovative, some are men, some are women, some are old, some are young, some have great educations, like collegiate education, some are more experientially educated. None of these things make somebody more or less qualified than the other, but all of them can weigh on our minds as candidates. I might not be enough of this. I might be too much of that. So how do you? I guess I'll ask this in two ways. Not a good way to ask a question, but I'm halfway there. How have you worked with candidates and what techniques have you seen that are successful in helping executive level candidates cut through that mental trash and focus on showcasing their potential? I'm so glad that you asked this question because you're not only correct, but they're also in the minds of many, many candidates on the market, they are buying into the hall pass the, that they are an introvert, so they can't network. They don't, they're not great writers, so they can't write content. So first of all, that head trash is, is it's killing you, right? It is killing your chances because one of the challenges that, most job seekers have is that they confuse reputation with visibility. And what I mean by that is people are not going to go and pluck you out of obscurity and start going and finding you if they can't see you. The world is too cluttered and clouded to be able to identify great candidates and job boards and online, you know, application trick systems are, have a very low yield more specifically, 1.2%. So if you're going through that traditional method and you're not building any kind of visibility outside of that, that automated process, you're just, you're in a long, long, frustrating, tiresome game. So the first, the first thing is work with what you have private. So I guess I'm one of those ambiverts. Most people think, oh, you're so outgoing. It's so easy for you. I still get scared out of my tree all the time. So it's not like, even if you are an extrovert, doesn't mean you're always fearless. So don't make an excuse for why you can't do this or that. Ask yourself what you can do. If you don't like writing content, commenting. Commenting is so valuable curate a list of people who are either in your industry or companies that you're excited about and give to them, share your thought leadership through your comments. Separately, if you think that you are not eligible for networking, for some reason you have a, an exemption card, guess what? You can learn this. It is not difficult. But as we talked about earlier, if you want that dopamine rush to be ignited for somebody else, all you need to do is ask a couple of good questions. Because once you ask those questions, they're going to set fire to what it is that they have going on because people like to talk about themselves. So if you can spark that and have them start talking about themselves, whew, pressure's off you. And guess what? They're going to walk away and they're going to say, that was one of the best conversations I ever had. And you didn't say very much. So work with what you have and be, be clear and ideally be at peace with what it is that are your levels of deficiency or perceived deficiency, and then lean into your strengths. Some people are great writers. Some people are great on video. Some people are amazing at storytelling, but no matter where you start, you can, you can learn and improve 
I mean, I'm constantly, constantly reworking areas of my content or developing new techniques around interviewing or establishing other types of communication styles that are going to be a good match for the audience that I'm in front of, whoever that is. And that continuous development is key for all of us. And um, I believe I'm speaking for you here when I say there are people who really are introverts and it's okay to be introverts. You know, we're not saying don't be an introvert. For me, I am introverted to the point of antisocial in many situations, but there are a few where based on experience, confidence, knowledge, whatever, then I, that I can be more extroverted in. But just because you and I are having this conversation nice and easy right now, doesn't mean if you put us in different environments, it would feel the same way. So it's important that for introverts to be introverted, but like you said, not to use it as a crutch. One of the things that we like to say is anytime someone says the phrase, I can't, like, I can't do that. They're leaving one word out of that sentence easily. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's and good. The, and the, the reason why they're saying they can't do it is because in their mind, the perceived physical work or cognitive work or emotional work that's necessary to get over that hump isn't worth the reward that they believe they would get for it. So if I have to do all this stuff and I still might not get the job I want, well, I can't do that. It's an, it's an easy way to, to rationalize th- that type of behavior change away. And to your point about leaning into it, if we're going, and I would love your thoughts on this, if we're going into a conversation and I'm introverted, if I feel like that might impact how I'm perceived, then I can put it out there and explain how I leverage it in order to create greater outcomes that other people might have seen coming. So I wouldn't open up with that. Well, thank you for talking to me today, Lauren. Before we start, you should probably know I'm an introvert, but I don't want to cut it off at the past. Just somewhere in the conversation, when it fits a question I'm asked, I can answer the question first and then mm-hmm. say, well, in a moment of self-reflection, if it's not already obvious, I am a bit introverted, which people might not typically expect for somebody in this role. However, I have found that it has given me the power of listening, introspection, problem solving, connecting with people offline to resolve inter- interpersonal differences, you know, whatever it is at that point. So being authentic to yourself and to your point, making it a strength is a really important opportunity. One of the books that I'm in the middle of reading, so please do not give me any demerits, is a a book by one of my favorite thought leaders on this topic. Her name is Vanessa Van Edwards, and the name of her book is called Captivate. Her second book is called Cues. I'm halfway through Captivate. And she describes herself as a recovering awkward person. And I don't necessarily define myself as an awkward person. I have awkward moments, that's for sure. And I think we all do. But some of the strategies in in these books are, are just so powerful where to stand at a networking event. You know, this zone she describes is, please do not stand over there. It's it's not really going to be conducive for you being less awkward. So tricks and, and ways that you can overcome some of those challenges. Just, I want to make you promise me listeners that you won't default into, into some of the weaker points and that you'll level up to some of the areas that are going to make you stronger, because that really is where a lot of that happiness and fulfillment will lie. You think that just because it's uncomfortable or it's icky or I can't, um, that it's okay, but it actually embeds some of that, the deficit that you're trying so hard to overcome. So don't get lazy about that. There's really, there's a much bigger opportunity at play. And like anything, the more we push ourselves back into a position, the harder it is to break ourselves out from it over time. I know that you have worked with, countless executives. So I'm curious, keeping, you know, we'll law and order it, you know, we'll protect the names and change the details and those kinds of things. Um, But as you reflect on your career and helping executives land their dream job, and maybe you overcome some of this head trash and obstacles that either they put in their way or put in their, in, in the way by others, what are some of the more profound examples that you can share to potentially help people motivate themselves to say, Hey, you know, I can do this too. I can create these breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. 
I'm so this timing could be not could not be more impeccable because right before this call, I will protect the name. I was on the call with a a former client of mine. We're just going to call him Gabriel for right now. And this is a gentleman who was at his previous company for 20 plus years. He was, he was a managing director. And when he and I first met, he was in tears. He had had a corner office and now he was driving carpool. He had a big, expensive home with two young kids and his wife was a crackerjack in, in being able to land lots of jobs. And he was so uncomfortable, not just with himself, but also nursing a lot of the, a lot of the anger and shame that had come from being let go after such a significant period of time. We've been playing phone tag for about a week and I, we actually got in touch with each other this morning and he said, He's now the CMO of a huge startup. He's doing really, really well. He was asking me some questions about some of the things that he could use for his business. And the best part of that conversation was when he said, I'm still using all these techniques in the job that I have now. So what we like to talk about in our in our business of Portfolio Rocket, which is our company that literally is there to help you discover and find out what you need to know today to learn for the rest of your life. Because if you just go about your search as a one and done, or I'm just going to get that job and all that kind of stuff with the rate at the, of the C-suite churn, which has never been faster the likelihood that you will be back on the market in another two, three years, your fault or not, is highly likely. So the idea is to get some good habits underneath your belt. And the story that I told you about Gabriel, I I speak to my past clients all the time. I've just also spoke with another woman who, I mean, her, her trajectory was it's just so mind blowing and all she wanted to do she had she was she was in an industry that wasn't serving her anymore and she really really wanted to do something that was mission based and she ended up she's now the CMO for Jose Andreas who is a big time chef who is very involved with uh starvation food making sure that they are feeding the hungry and um, so it was a mission-based company, but she, she did not land that, that role because she found an open job. She, she did that through networking, but really what, at the end of the day, what really inspired them to hire her was that this was so near and dear to her heart and they could feel that sentiment. So there are hundreds and hundreds of stories that go along here, but I think the most rewarding piece about this and the piece that I want to pass along is that if impact or having a seat at the table is more than just a catchphrase, then make sure that is known and felt. Because when it is, it is that visceral, it's hard to deny a conversation and it's hard to deny that truism of, I don't know what that was, but I just want more. So really that, that I think is probably one of the the things that makes what I do so rewarding and why I'm so passionate about it. Which is clear in in how you talk about it. Um, In that last example you gave, you talked about her not just finding a job that had been posted, but through networking, becoming aligned with an opportunity that fit something that she believed so deeply in herself. Um, It's come to my attention. It's not a secret, but it came to my attention years ago that when you talk about, and you mentioned it, like the 1.2% success with trying the online thing, 
that essentially the hiring algorithms are stacked against the candidates and they're exclusive and they're not inclusive and they do a better job screening out good candidates than they do letting through qualified candidates and it's input in versus what you get out. There's all kinds of problems with it, but yet companies rely on them more than ever because they save time. And in my opinion, provide a really convenient excuse when the hire doesn't work out, but that's a conversation for another day. So besides the networking and the content and some of the things that we've talked about, what techniques do you have for people in order to help them beat the algorithms and give themselves a better chance at earning consideration for jobs that are a great fit for them? So I'm going to preface the answer to this question by saying, Success doesn't take long, but it does take courage. And so these strategies that I'm throwing out there, if you want to be a part of the personal blanding movement, there's more for that. If you don't want to be part of the blanding and you really want to differentiate and, and be and stand out, then this strategy is for you. So one of the things that we work with our clients on is creating a memorability, right? Creating that, that top of mind awareness. And it's easy to be more top of mind when they see your face. <laughs> so when you send that thank you note, embed a video, have it come from you. If you are a hiring manager, you are getting so many emails and they all have the same crappy subject line, just following up, Ugh. right? Every single one of them. Use a show me you know me in the subject line that came out of a previous interview or conversation. And now you can embed a video, you can use things like Loom, there's Vidyard, there's a bunch of tools out there that are free and take no time at all. Sure, you might want to practice a couple of times, but after I meet people, not every time, but a lot of times, I'll put that in there. And it's unscripted and you can make your point very clearly. One of the challenges with emails is that the understanding of an email is that there's work to do. I think you're going to ask me for something. I'm going to have to read it. I'm going to have to, you know, wade through all of this information. When somebody's talking to you, it's like work free. It's fun. It's engaging. I remember it because let's face it. How many video follow-ups are they going to get? Not a lot. Not a lot. So, this is more or less your zig or zag strategy. You know, be that person that's going to do that. Not only is it differentiating, it says, hey, I'm tech savvy and I know how to use some more innovative and relevant tools. It will not put you, especially if you are concerned about ageism, back into a camp that says this person is a dinosaur because that's not going to be helpful in your search. So find ways that you can demonstrate that if you are great at problem solving, well, here's a great problem to solve. How do you stay top of mind? Now you are showing them instead of telling them. I love that. And I'm so happy to hear you say problem solving because number one, I think that's something that hiring managers really should be focusing on and almost never do. Certainly as candidates, we're really at any point in life, whatever our role is, how are we finding unique ways to solve the problem? But we can choose to focus on the problem or we can choose to focus on the solution. So am I worried that people will think I'm too old? Okay, well, how can I respond in ways that are typical of younger people? Even if I have to go learn it or ask my son or daughter to do it for me. Do okay. it, learn it, make it happen. So finding those solutions, I think, is a, is a wonderful perspective. I want to just uh, offer a, a slight variation of that. It's not about young or old. It's about relevant for their business. So where if, if they are or you are saying, hey, I'm innovative and you come back and show them something from the prehistoric days, you are just splintering that, that message all the way around. 
So I really like to stay in the place of relevancy because that can apply to wherever you are in the spectrum. I'm 59 years old. I don't care. I, I, I could care less about age, but what I do care about is whoever I'm speaking to is I want to make sure that it's landing for them in and with the agenda points that mean something for them. So that's your responsibility that goes back to you. If you don't know how to do it, yeah, ask your son or daughter, take an AI class, up-level your, your skill sets. And one of the things that I really do want to make clear is that as a job candidate, as somebody in the marketplace, you are responsible for upskilling and up-leveling. So there is a governing body of human resources that says you should be investing between 5 and 10% of your annual compensation in upskilling. So you choose what that looks like. You choose whether it's a course, you choose whether it's a coach, you choose whether it is a way for you to examine your communication, whatever that is. And that also is another notch in your belt to prove a level of relevancy. You cannot say that you are somebody who is career-minded or necessarily somebody who is addicted to learning if you're not staying hip to what the learning is. That's a great point. And as my father used to say, it's your job to get a job. Like Getting a job is a job in and of itself. It's not a passive task. It's very much an active task. So I can't thank you enough. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. I know you have lots of other things going on today, and I'm really grateful for you sharing the time. You have shared so many ideas, strategies, and insights in the last hour or so. There have to be people listening right now going, how do I find out more about Lauren, her company, her podcast, which you didn't really have time to get into today? But there's so much content, so many things you have going on. I'll be sure to include the links on the show notes, but please tell people, what are you doing? Where are you? How can they find so much more of all that you have to offer? Thank you, Michael. The best place to find out about Portfolio Rocket and what I do is Portfolio Rocket. Dot com. That's easy. I also spend a lot of time living on LinkedIn. You can find me there. I know that my name will be spelled right because it's a bit of a beast. And if you want to find out about exterminating more stinky, outdated career advice, please come and find me on Career Blast and the Half. We are loving, loving our listeners so much. We are currently at the top 2% of all podcast globally. We are really committed to making sure that we get in people's ears so that they have tools and strategies that work for today. And I can vouch. You do a fantastic job interviewing your guests and you got a lot of tools to help people support their journey. Really, and I'm biased on this, of course, but as you said earlier in the example you gave with the man we will call Gabriel, that the skills and techniques that we're applying apply to so many things outside of just research. Thank so, you again. Oh, thank you. I can't thank you enough for your time. What a great conversation. It was so wonderful to see you. Please stay safe, keep in touch, and I can't wait to continue the conversation another time. Thank you so much. Lauren, thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. I appreciate all of those insights and examples that you shared with us today. The strategic techniques, the tactical approaches, so much wealth in that conversation. I truly appreciate it. I love the idea of being sticky and being memorable. The sequencing effect, so important to consider in our conversations. Show me that you know me. What a great concept. And I really love the idea of not mistaking reputation for visibility. I think that's a really important to call out as well. So Lauren, thank you so, so much for another great conversation. And I'll be sure to include all the links to her resources in the show notes below. 
Of course, before we go, we want to thank our sponsors, HumanTel. One more time, head over to HumanTel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off all of their best-in-class online training to recognize how shifting facial expressions equate to shifting emotions and what that might mean for you in the context of your conversations. I highly recommend it. I've done all the training myself. Head over to EI-Magazine.com for Emotional Intelligence Magazine for their library of emotional intelligence resources, books, articles podcasts, videos, interviews, online training, cohorts, in-person events, find it all at Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And of course, for the professional interviewers who are listening, please head over to certifiedinterviewer.com. That's where you can find all the resources about joining the International Association of Interviewers. All their online training, all of their networking opportunities, all of their legal and support resources, everything you would need is there, as well as all of the information if you are considering earning your certified forensic interviewer designation and leveling up to that designation of expertise. So find it all there at certifiedinterviewer.com. Of course, thanks to every single one of you for taking the time to listen to our conversation again today. We truly appreciate you being here, following along, listening to each conversation. Hopefully you are getting as much or more from it than I am truly enjoying these conversations. Thank you. I would love to hear your feedback. Please comment, share, let us know any questions that you have. Would you like to see more, hear more or less of? We'd be happy to share it. And of course, we appreciate you doing the things the algorithms ask us to do. Like the show, share the show, subscribe to the show, comment on the show, all of those things. We do truly appreciate it. As always, thank you again for being here with us. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe and take care of each other.